0: Scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John. I will be reading chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. It can be found on page 888 of the Pew Bible and on the screen behind me. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but is only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. The Sumerian woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Sumerians. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. The woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. "'Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, "'but you say that in Jerusalem "'is the place where the people ought to worship.' "'Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, "'the hour is coming when neither on this mountain "'nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. "'You worship what you do not know. "'We worship what we know, "'for salvation is from the Jews.' I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Uh, this is God's word.
1: Let's pray together as we look at God's Word. Lord, as we sang a few minutes ago, we invite you to come. Lord, we long for the day when you return, but we ask that right now you would be with us here by your Spirit. Because if you're not here, we can't hear you. And that's what we want right now, Lord, is to hear from you as we look into your word to see you, that our hearts might be changed. So be with us and be glorified. Amen. Well, this morning we pick back up on the series that we had been going through prior to our missions conference the last couple of weeks. Our goal this fall has been to take a fresh look at some familiar stories in the Gospels to slow down a bit and ask a single precise question. How does Jesus love us? How does Jesus love us? We want to meditate on the heart of Christ as it's revealed in the person Of Christ, to look at his interactions with those that he encountered during his earthly ministry uh, and, and see how that reveals to us his love, to see how he loved them so as to understand more deeply and reflect more fully how he loves us. That's been our goal. And so, so far we've looked at Uh, Christ's willing love in Mark chapter one, how he was willing to move toward those whom this world despises and discards toward the leper who approached him and how Jesus rehumanized him and restored him, even as he redirected him from getting too excited about small things. Then we saw Jesus's heavenly love in John chapter three, when Nicodemus, the, the Pharisee, Uh, approached him, member of the religious elite who thought he kind of had God's kingdom figured out, and how Jesus, in his love, was unwilling to leave him trapped in his earthly categories, but instead exposed his real need for radical transformation, and ultimately met that need through his cross and resurrection. Uh, In a similar way, in Mark chapter 2, we saw Jesus' omniscient love, How he is able to love the paralyzed man perfectly, addressing the deeper need for forgiveness. Not just the need everyone else in the room saw, but the need he knew because he intimately and thoroughly knows every single one of us. And then in Mark 4, we saw how Jesus loved his disciples in their unbelief, his disruptive love, we called it. Which through the trial of the storm created space for his disciples to realize who Jesus truly is. But each of the people that we've met so far. Either knew Jesus like his disciples. Or knew of Jesus and were seeking him out. Like the leper or Nicodemus or the paralyzed man and his friends. What happens When someone encounters Jesus who doesn't know who he is or isn't really looking for him, what does his love look like then? And what does that mean for us, whether we're trying to reach out to or come alongside someone who doesn't know Jesus or doesn't see their need for him or who isn't really looking for his love or whether that someone is actually us? Well, our story this morning helps us answer that question as it shows us the persistent love of Jesus. How no barrier, whether social or personal or religious, and no evasive maneuver can keep Jesus from revealing who he is and offering new life to all who believe. And so if you're not still there, go ahead and and make your way back to John chapter 4. So far in John's gospel, Jesus has been ministering in Jerusalem, uh, cleansing the temple, conversing with uh, Pharisees like Nicodemus in chapter 3, and his ministry is beginning to become rather well-known, enough that it's now eclipsing John the Baptist's ministry, uh, much to the alarm of the Pharisees. They thought they had a problem with John the Baptist, and now they're really worried with what they're seeing about Jesus. But because Jesus' hour has not yet come, the cross is still off in the distance, uh, this flurry of recent attention tells Jesus it is time to kind of head back up to Galilee for a bit. And so he and his disciples leave. But to get to Galilee, they have to pass through Samaria. That was the shortest, most common route. And along that route to Galilee, as they're in Samaria, what begins as a rest stop at Jacob's well becomes another window into the heart of Jesus. And so he's weary from his journey. Uh, he's thirsty. It's noon. It's the peak of the day's heat. And so while his disciples head into town to get some food, Jesus, though he doesn't have anything to draw water with, heads to this well and sits down there and along comes a woman from samaria to draw water and this woman is not looking for jesus she uh didn't hear a report that he was in the area and so then went and sought him out so that she could be healed or learn from him or anything like that she's there for the same reason he's there to get water that's why she's there and so when he speaks to her, she's actually quite suspicious uh, for honest reasons. First, Jesus is Jewish, and she's a Samaritan. Uh, look at her response to his request for a drink in verse 9. He asks her for a drink, and she says this, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing dealings with Samaritans, or or perhaps do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. To the the first century Jew, a Samaritan was tainted goods. There's a backstory behind that that animosity here. When the king of Assyria, you you roll back the timeline, clear back to uh, 722 B.C., when the king of Assyria carried away the ten northern tribes of Israel into captivity, he, sent, he repopulated that area with foreigners. And the poorer Jews who remained in that area married in with the, the, the Canaanite, uh, essentially, who, who came back into that land, uh, and their descendants became known as the Samaritans. You can read about that in Second Kings 17 if you're curious. So, when the Southern tribes who 'd been exiled into Babylon when they come back to their land, the northern folks, the Samaritans now uh, they never quite measured up. They were racially impure, they had part, and they had departed from the standards of israel 's religion, so they worshipped God at their own temple in the north at Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem. they used a different Bible they only had. Uh, the torah the first five books of israel scripture they didn't accept the rest of israel scripture what we call the old testament and so to the jews these samaritans they were outside of the covenant they were unclean no different than a gentile and that's what made you know for instance that's what made the parable of the good samaritan such a radical illustration in its day I mean, you had a Levite and a priest who were supposed to be the embodiment of Israel's virtue being shown up by a Samaritan. That was unthinkable. And and so there's this animosity. Why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan for a drink? She's understandably suspicious about that. But the ethnic difference was not the only reason she's suspicious. Second... She's a woman alone with a man at a well. So notice how her response doesn't just emphasize the ethnic difference, but also the gender difference. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? A woman finding herself alone uh, with a strange man can be quite intimidating. And it's not just potentially threatening it was socially out of bounds in that day because it invited a potential scandal. I mean, you you fast forward to the end of the story when Jesus' disciples get back, quote, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. I mean, Jesus was breaking the Mike Pence rule here. What is he doing? But then third, there's another element that likely feeds into the guard or the suspicion of the woman. That we see in her response. She seems to be an outcast. Even among her own people. Not just to the Jews. But among her own people. Why else would she come to collect water. At the hottest part of the day. Rather than the cool of the morning or the evening. When everyone else was likely to be there. Now Jesus is going to put his finger on that. Directly a little bit later, but there seems to be this element of shame at play that the woman has something to hide And so she is guarded She's not looking for Jesus. She is guarded. She's unaware of his identity She is suspicious of his intentions and she's ashamed of her own sin She doesn't know who Jesus is and she isn't really interested in whatever he's trying to sell And that's the precise problem that Jesus sets out to overcome. Because he knows that if she knew who he was and what he was offering, she would want in. If you look at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But this is not going to be an easy sale. There are... Multiple barriers standing between this woman and the life that Jesus offers. More than that, as soon as he gets close, she goes into evasive maneuvers and and starts trying to dodge or distract the conversation. It's like those action movies when a missile is like following a jet and it starts doing barrel rolls and sending off flares. That's what she's doing. But Jesus, in his love, is persistent. He is persistent. No barriers can hold back and no evasive maneuvers can outsmart his commitment to reveal who he is and offer new life to all who believe. And so what does that persistent love look like here? First, it means that Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus takes the initiative, which we've already seen. He doesn't sit around waiting for her to kind of ask who he is or ask for whatever he's offering. She doesn't know she needs what he has to offer. And so Jesus takes the initiative. He's the one that starts the conversation. But he's very gentle in doing so. It's quite different from the way that he spoke to Nicodemus back in chapter 3. We looked at that chapter a few weeks back. Uh, there, Jesus was pretty direct and blunt because Nicodemus thought he had it figured out. He had to be roused from his presumption and redirected to the right conversation. The Samaritan woman doesn't even know she needs to have a conversation, she's there because she's thirsty. And so Jesus is gentle with her. Now, he will challenge her in the conversation, but he's very patient and gentle in getting there. He doesn't treat her as an enemy to be defeated or proven wrong. He invites her into a dialogue. He takes the first step. And that's something for us to think about in our own lives, both for receiving Jesus' love and for sharing that love. So in terms of receiving it, never forget that Jesus is the one who took the initiative with us. Jesus is the one who took the initiative with us. We don't know him or love him because we figured him out. As 1 John 4.19 reminds us, We love because He first loved us. Or 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The reality is that none of us know our need for Christ until He opens our eyes and our hearts to draw us to Himself. John, Jesus says in, in, in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God always takes the initiative. And, and so there ought to be a profound humility and gratitude and joy in our experience of Jesus' love. Moreover, when it comes to sharing the love of Christ with others... The reality is that sometimes we have to take the initiative too, just like Jesus. I mean, It's always nice when someone comes to you asking for the reason for the hope that you have. Um, maybe they experience a, a tragedy or a crisis in life that wakes them up to their need. But what about friends and family or colleagues and classmates who don't know that they need Jesus? Who don't realize their need how long will we sit around the water cooler until we bring that topic up until we invite them not into a debate but a conversation a spiritual conversation which can be really scary to think about right because we go through in our head all of the ways that this thing could backfire But is Jesus not worth it? And is the gift that he offers not compelling? Persistent love begins by taking the initiative. Second, after taking the initiative, Jesus persists in his love by stirring up an unknown thirst in the woman's heart. In somewhat crass terms, Jesus is the consummate marketer. He creates in her a desire for something she didn't even know she wanted. Though much of what you know, gets marketed uh, today, unlike much of what gets marketed today, she actually needs what he has to offer. This is, this is life and death. And so look again at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that's saying to you, Give me a drink you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Oh, to drink and never be thirsty again. And the power of that metaphor is somewhat lost on us today in, a, in our age of modern plumbing when any one of us can go out to the water fountain out there or turn on a, a spigot within 20 feet. But for most of human, human history, uh, if you wanted fresh water, that meant a daily trip to the well or to the stream, sometimes multiple trips. And so this is a powerful picture to drink and never be thirsty again Uh, It's a picture that captures the woman's attention and her imagination. But of course, Jesus is talking about satisfaction at a much deeper level. A satisfaction that the woman can barely even begin to imagine. Uh, He uses a play on words to describe it. So on the one hand, living water simply means moving water, fresh water, water that comes from a stream or a source as opposed to a pond of stale water that's not moving and just gets stagnant and gross. So living waters, fresh water, but it's also the language of new life by God's Spirit in the Old Testament. In passages like Ezekiel 36 or Isaiah 44 or Jeremiah 2, Uh, later in, in John's uh, gospel in chapter seven, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, spiritual satisfaction and new life. John explains for us uh, a verse, a couple of verses later, Jesus said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So this is the gift that Jesus wants to give. Uh, This is the gift that he offers to all of us. New and eternal life, to drink and never thirst again. It is a satisfaction that is utterly unparalleled on earth. And even if we aren't really looking for it, once you glimpse it, or once you taste it, or hear a rumor of it, we know we have to have it. I mean, it really is like a commercial where, you know, uh, seeing a commercial and walking away desperate for something you didn't know existed 30 seconds ago. You know, I've lived my whole life content up to this point, but now that I've seen that that exists, I can't imagine life otherwise. Only in this case, it's actually true. It's actually true. There is nothing else that will satisfy us like eternal life in Jesus. And that's true not just for the woman in the story, but for all of us today. Whether we are talking about receiving Christ's love personally or sharing that love with others. Everybody thirsts. Everyone longs for something outside of themselves to fill them up. And most of us will spend our entire lives looking for that something. Chasing that hunger, that thirst, that satisfaction. We might try and satisfy it or meet it with success. Or with achievement, or money, or possessions, or people, or sex, or drugs, or power, or fame. The list is unending. But every single one of those things will leave us thirsty... And every drink we take is less effective at satisfying our thirst than the one before. Years ago, the great tennis champion Boris Becker said, I had won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars. They have everything and yet they're so unhappy. I had no inner peace. We all thirst for something and there is nothing on earth that will satisfy. But Jesus says, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring." of water welling up to eternal life. And so as we consider the invitation of Jesus, do we see how nothing this world offers compares? And are we helping those around us see that? That what they're really longing for, what they're aching and thirsting for, even if they don't realize it, is Jesus. That's what that hunger is driving them toward. So the woman wants in. She wants what Jesus is offering. But she's still confused. She says to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still thinking in earthly categories. Much like Nicodemus back in chapter 3 who when Jesus talks about the necessity of being born again is thinking how in the world do I get back into my mother's womb a second time. He's stuck in earthly categories. And so, you know, that's where she's at. She's just, she's not there yet. She's interested, but she's not there. And so Jesus, in his love, persists. He keeps pursuing her. He's taken the initiative. He's stirred up this thirst. And now third, he exposes her need for a savior. Look at how the conversation completely turns in verse 16. She asks him for the water that he's offering, and he says this, Go call your husband and come here. Talk about an awkward change of subject. Especially when she answers in verse 17, I have no husband, and Jesus says, I know. You're right in saying that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have right now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Ouch. I mean, why does Jesus go there? That's a pretty risky move. I mean, if you said something like that to a woman that you had just met in a coffee shop, you would be wearing her mocha at that point. Like, that's bold. Why does Jesus, having started so gently, all of a sudden now pry so personally? He's bringing her to the place where she can understand who he is and the gift that he offers. That's what he's pursuing. And that means that she has to come to grips with her real problem and her real need the problem of sin, and her need for a savior. This isn't about shaving a few steps off of the Fitbit on the way to and from the well. That's not what Jesus is offering. This is about the eternal satisfaction of being reconciled with God and redeemed for his purposes, which requires the forgiveness of sins. If we don't understand that we have a sin problem that needs to be forgiven, we aren't in a place to receive what Jesus has to offer. Now, sin is a tricky subject today. Sometimes it seems that churches uh, or Christians talk too much about it, like we're plagued with a chronic guilt or obsessed with evaluating everybody else's morality. And that happens But the other error is just as common. To never talk about sin, or to pretend like it isn't a problem at all, or that you can understand Jesus' love without coming to grips with sin. Sin matters not because God is grumpy, but because He's holy. He's holy and perfect. And our sin, our rebellion and disobedience separates us from our holy God. It destroys our connection, our relationship with him. It makes us enemies of God. And it destroys our relationship with others around us. It, it, it just messes everything up. And so you can't love someone well while ignoring sin. It just doesn't work. It's like trying to be nice to someone without telling them that they're heading the wrong way down a one-way street. That's not very loving. So you can't understand the love of God for you without owning your sin and what it costs God to deal with it mercifully. Again, you think of 1 John 4.10. In this is love. You want to know what love is? This is what love is. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Christ's willingness to deal with our sin by giving his life is the epitome of love. There's no greater definition or example. And so if we're going to understand God's love for us, if we're going to share that love with others, we can't ignore the uncomfortable subject of sin. It's probably not the first thing you bring up in a conversation with someone you just met, especially someone who doesn't know who Jesus is or realize their need for him. But if you never bring it up with others, you're not sharing the gospel. You cannot proclaim the good news without Helping people understand the bad news. And it need not be an us versus them kind of conversation. That's our how we kind of make it sometimes, or that's how it comes across, but that's not really what it is. It's not us Christians and you sinners over there. It's us sinners and a gracious Savior calling us to himself. We need the gospel just as much as everyone else because we are just as guilty of sin. And so in his love, Jesus exposes the woman's sin to reveal her need for a savior. He reveals his divine knowledge of her personal story, not so he could publicly shame her, but so that he can completely remove that shame from her. Cleansing her from the inside out. Which brings us to his final move in his persistent love. He reveals himself as the savior that she needs. Now her guard remains up. In fact, now that Jesus has gone there and talk about, talked about sin, her guard's actually ratcheted up a few notches. It's a little higher. And so she begins to pull some evasive maneuvers. She begins to dodge, to distract. And the first flare that she shoots off uh, in effort to change the conversation is the topic of religion. So being a Samaritan wasn't just a cultural or ethnic thing. It was a religious thing. And the woman seems quite familiar with Her religion, and so she brings up one of the central points of contention between Jews and Samaritans, the proper place of worship. She says to Jesus in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, while this is clearly an, an attempt to change the subject... Uh, It's an honest question as well. Uh, It has real-world implications for how Jews and Samaritans relate to God. But as Jesus gently points out, it's no longer the right question now that the Messiah is here. It's a real question, but it's no longer the right question. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's correcting her. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And truth. And so Jesus does correct her that, that the Jews do, in fact, have a historical and a covenantal priority in God's plan of redemption. Salvation is from the Jews, it's through the seed of Abraham that, that the Messiah would come. But his main point is that with the coming of the Messiah, things are going to be different for both Jews and Samaritans, as well as the rest of the world. Because all of the outward expressions of Israel's faith, the temple, the sacrifices, the offices of prophet, priest, and king, all of them pointed forward toward the arrival of Israel's king, the Messiah or Christ. And so with his arrival, what was true of the temple is now true of Jesus. He is the special presence of God in the world. Think of what he says in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And he's talking about his own body. Jesus is the temple. And when God pours out his Holy Spirit on the church at Pentecost, the church becomes the temple of God now scattered throughout the earth. And so the woman's questions is a moot point. It no longer matters where the temple is now that Jesus is here. Why do you care about the shadow when the reality is staring you in the face? And yet, not recognizing who Jesus is yet, she's still unconvinced. And so in a a somewhat ironic twist, she fires off her last flare, attempting to just end the conversation. Verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, we don't have to settle this today. When the Messiah gets here, he'll tell us who's wrong and who's right. Finally, Jesus' persistence pays off. He reveals himself to be the Savior that she needs. Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. At that point, you, you expect Jesus to do a mic drop or something like that boom. But this isn't about the petty triumph of winning an argument. This is about the persistent love of pursuing a lost sheep in order to give them life. And there is no barrier that Jesus is unwilling to break through to reveal himself in his love and there is no maneuver that we can pull to outsmart him or, or, or shake him when he sets his sight on our heart. He takes the initiative. He stirs up in us an, an unknown thirst. He exposes our sin and our need for a Savior so that he can say to us, I who you speak of am he. So are we willing to believe in Jesus and his persistent love. Do you believe that Christ, in his love, bridged the gap of heaven and earth? He rent the heavens and came down as our Savior and King, not willing to let anything stop him from what he came to do, to give his life as a ransom for many to buy us back out of our sin. Do we understand the lengths Jesus was willing to go to to rescue us, to reach our hearts? I mean, perhaps uh, you don't know Jesus or you're not really looking for him. But just because you're not looking for him doesn't mean he's not pursuing you. And God brought you here this morning, didn't he? So think through your life and how God is trying to get your attention. What is he saying to you about his love? And are we willing to embody that persistent love as we share the love of Christ with others? Friends or family, colleagues or classmates who don't even know they're looking for Jesus. Or who perhaps decided they really don't want what Jesus is selling. What does it look like for us to embody that persistent love? Both the patience and the persistence. The gentleness and the directness. It takes a lot of prayer. A lot of wisdom. A lot of support from one another. Because it's often a really long road. Very rarely is it, do we have a single conversation with someone who has never heard of Jesus before who ends up giving their life to him. Especially in New England. It's a lot longer process. So it takes a lot of faith. Faith to step out in taking the initiative. Faith to appeal to that thirst that nothing on earth can quench. Faith to bring up the sin problem and faith to point them to the Savior. Many of you were here last spring when Christopher Yuan and his parents shared their story. How Christopher uh, ran further and further from God uh, and from his parents and how they never gave up. Uh, His mom fasted and prayed for him every Monday for seven years seven years, until Christopher found himself at the very bottom of society's barrel, in prison, uh, diagnosed with AIDS, everything that you could never want, and was finally able to hear Jesus calling him. No one is beyond the reach of Christ, because no one is beyond the reach of his love. And when we see and taste that persistent love, it changes everything. It changes everything. When, when the woman finally saw Jesus for who he is and, and began to understand just what it was he was offering her, the same woman who had come to the well secretly under the cover of the day's heat now left her water jug, the whole reason she was there, ran into town and gave public testimony To who Jesus was. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And verse 39 tells us that many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And as Jesus hung around and spent time with them, many more believed because of his word. Verse 42. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So may we see and taste and embody that persistent love of Jesus in our lives and in our witness as a church.